Well, you know, throughout human history, there have been people who have taken risk, who have taken challenges. And, you know, they're known to us as risk takers. And these risk takers, because of a passion, because of a drive, whatever it is, they often will put their lives in jeopardy, you know, to see something come to pass or, or see someone learn something or to advance a greater cause. Uh, for example, Christopher Columbus. I mean, we've all heard of Christopher Columbus and how he left Europe to cross the Atlantic and landed in the Americas. And, you know, now we have the new world as a result of him taking these great risks and sailing off into the sea when they said that he was going to fall off the ledge into nothing. And someone like the Wright brothers, uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright, who really wanted to fly things that weighed more than air. And they began with kites, and eventually they were able to get metal up into the air and ride in it. And the aviation industry was born from their risks and their work. Or someone like Buzz Aldrin, who was uh, the first man to step on the moon. In 1969, he spent 20 hours on the moon. And we've learned so much in science and space and aviation and aeronautics as a result. So whether it's sailing into these unknown waters or flying up into the sky or you know, stepping out onto the moon, these people who took these risks really made a difference with their lives, a difference that... You know, change things for us. But what about us as Christian women, as women who love and serve Jesus? What are we willing to risk? And you know, not for a passion, not for a cause, not for a drive, but what are we willing to risk to obey our King? To obey the King, the Lord of heaven and earth. What is it that we're willing to risk in order to do as he asks? Well, as we explore the third chapter of our book of Ruth, we're going to see that a woman who is obedient to God is a woman who's willing to take risks. And when she takes those risks, she has the potential not only to change life on this planet, but to change eternity. So let's just jump into Ruth chapter three and begin by reading the text together. Ruth chapter three begins. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself, wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of, his grain, of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Well, scholars have said that chapter one was on the road, on the road back to Bethlehem. Chapter two was in the field. And now here, chapter three is on the fleshing, threshing floor. And when we left off in the end of chapter two, Ruth was harvesting. It was harvest times. And now weeks have passed. And it's what they call winnowing time, which takes place late May through June. And for the first time, we see Naomi begin to think about someone other than herself. Uh, scholars have said up to this point, actually, Naomi was concerned with three people, me, myself, and I. <laughs> but now she begins to think about Ruth. Because of Ruth's loyalty and Ruth's hard work, because of Boaz and his generosity, her heart begins to soften. And she realizes that God has provided them with food. But would God actually provide Ruth a husband? Would she provide a husband for her daughter-in-law, Ruth? Because as Naomi was getting older, what would happen to Ruth? I mean, remember, she was a foreigner. With Naomi dead, would Ruth be accepted or rejected? What would be her fate? So again, 3.1 says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And that word there for rest in Hebrew is manoah. And interestingly, it's the same root word that's used in chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9, when Naomi was urging and pressuring Ruth to leave, saying, may Yahweh grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, as you return back to Moab and the gods of Moab, even Chemosh. So she wanted Ruth previously to get this rest, to find this protection, to find this marriage in the wrong way. And now things had turned, 
And she was thinking, could Yahweh, could the Lord actually grant this rest to my daughter-in-law, Ruth? But who would be willing to marry Ruth? Who would be willing to marry this foreign widow? And she thought, Boaz, our relative. We know him, we know his character. And in verse two, we see this excitement there. In the ESV, uh, the word atah begins the sentence, but it's not translated, it's really now. It says now kind of this excitement. And she says, see. So verse two, she says, now is not Boaz our relative, whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. It's like she's saying, whoa, I've got this great idea. Think about this, Boaz will be winnowing on the threshing floor tonight. Now, the threshing floor was um, a place that they would set up in the rock outcrops. And it would be a place where there were rocks and it would be free from dirt. So they would take all that grain that they had harvested and they would begin to thresh it out or beat it down onto the rocks. They'd take these long stalks of grain and beat them on the rocks and as they did, the grain would fall from the stalks and that was the threshing. And then when the winnowing came, they would take these uh, grains that still had like an outer husk that wasn't proper to eat and they would throw those grains up into the air and they would often do it at night because there would be a night breeze. And as the night breeze would come through, it would pick up the grain and it would blow off those husks called the chaff. And the grain would fall back down to the threshing floor. It's like if you took a mixture of sawdust and sand and you mixed it all together really good. And you took this mixture of sawdust and sand and you threw it up in piles up into the wind, the sawdust would blow off and the sand would fall back down to the ground. And that's the way that they purified the wheat. They purified the barley that way. It was a process that they did. So Naomi said, now is the time. This is the night. And she gave Ruth some very interesting instructions. The first thing is, the first point, if we want to be like Ruth is, we need to plan to do whatever God asks. <laughs> plan to do whatever God asks. Now, the threshing floor at night would also be a relatively secluded spot. Uh, you could talk, she thought, under the cover of darkness. No one's going to see you there. Because back in that day, women didn't just cruise up to men and have conversations. I mean, this kind of stuff didn't take place. So Naomi thought, at that threshing floor, it's going to be night. There's not going to be a lot of people there. This is the time to go. And she gives her this laid-out seven-part plan. And the first thing she says is, take a bath. You're gonna take a bath, and then you're going to apply perfume. That's like the ancient deodorant of the day. If you've ever heard of the Italian shower, you know, put your perfume on, let's cover up those smells, right? And then she said, put on your cloak. So that's one, two, and three. In verse three, wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. Take a bath, put your perfume on, and put on your cloak. And that word for cloak is an interesting Hebrew word. It's simla, it's a large outer covering. And you know, we see this same process in the book of 2 Samuel. 
in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Uh, remember, David had sinned with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba had conceived a child, and the consequence for David's sin was that the child was going to die. And David interceded before the Lord to see if God would have mercy and change his mind about this. And in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 12, it says, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. So David realized that God did take the child's life and he didn't decide to divert that consequence. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. Same Hebrew words here, same Hebrew word for clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. What was going on there? What is this washing and anointing yourself and changing your clothes? Well, it was a process, an ancient process that signified that your mourning had come to an end. That your period of grief, your period of mourning had come to an end and you were willing to move forward with regular life. Now, they say that possibly up to this point, uh, Ruth wore what might have been known as the widow's garment. Uh, there are references in Genesis, for example, in Genesis 38 with Tamar, 38:14, where it says she took off her widow's garment. So there are clothes that they would wear to signify that they were widows or in a process of mourning. And Naomi basically instructed her, now is the time. It's time for you to move forward. It's time for you to let go of the morning, put it behind you, and move forward with normal life. And you know, sometimes for us, I mean, we don't often think about this, but sometimes for us, we need to move forward with normal life. Sometimes for us, we need to move past the stage of mourning. We don't want to stay there forever. I mean, we can be locked into who we used to be a long time ago, maybe still identifying with a job that we used to hold or a role that we used to have or a position that we used to have or an identity that we were known by. You know, and there's kind of a, a biblical just admonition here to move forward, to keep going forward, not to get stuck in the past. And you might be at a place where God might be saying, it's time for you to let go of that, that job title, that role, whatever it is, and to move forward with your life. I mean, maybe God's calling you in a sense to spiritually take a bath and put on perfume and put on your cloak. Because we do have to get to the place where we are willing to live in today and to move forward with our lives. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie uh, Napoleon Dynamite. You remember Uncle Rico? He was always living in the past. I mean, he was some high school football star, right? And even though he was older now, all he would do is replay VHS, VHS, VHS tapes of himself throwing that football, right? And he would make his nephew sit down there and watch it again and again, and they'd eat popcorn and watch Uncle Rico throw the football. And obviously, the writers, the authors of that script, that screenplay, wanted us to realize it's silly when people live in the past. 
You know, and again, there's kind of this exhortation here to move forward, not to be locked into who you were in the past. Because for us as Christians, ultimately, it doesn't matter who we were or who, in a sense, we even are right now. Because the Bible teaches us again and again, if we are in Christ, that is our identity. Our identity is in Christ, and literally that is all that matters. Everything, in a sense, pales in comparison to that. Well, you might think, that's great, Ruth is getting these great instructions from Naomi. Where am I gonna get these instructions? I mean, I don't have a Naomi telling me to take a bath, put on perfume, and put a cloak on. But we do have instructions, right? We do have a place where we can go to hear what God is saying to us. You guys all know what that is, right? The scripture, right? We can all go to the scripture. And the scripture gives us the instructions for life. I mean, think about a scripture that we all know very well. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Such a great reminder to us. All scripture, all graphe, all writings, the Old and the New Testament is breathed out by God. This is God's message to us or God's instructions to us. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man, the anthropos, the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the scripture tells us that the scripture will give us instructions. The person of God will be equipped for every good work if we look to the scripture. You know, we can do this when we do our DBR, when we do our Bible reading each day, as you know, Carlin reminded us this morning. If we wanna be a woman who works unto the Lord, we've gotta be a woman who's in her Bible daily. And when we're in our Bibles, we can get out a journal or a piece of paper. I use Evernote on my phone app. But before we read, we can say, God, these are the questions that I have. These are the things that I'm dealing with. Show me through your word what you want me to do. You know, and time after time, when we're reading his word, we get that instruction from him. He shows us things. He gives us direction. He shows us biblical law and principle. And it's so often he ends up revealing to us exactly what we need to do or how we need to look at something, the attitude that we need to have. And so in a sense, we too are getting instructions from God. We need to, like Ruth, plan to do whatever he asks. I mean, when we see these instructions, when we read them, we've got to do them. We've got to be willing to do what they say. So the instruction to Ruth continues in verse 3. She says, after you do those three things, then go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. So she's supposed to go to the threshing floor because that's where he will be working. Boaz will be there threshing and winnowing that barley and that wheat. And she says, don't let him know that you're there until he's eaten and drunk, until he's relaxed. 
uh, until he's in a point where he's full and he's satisfied and he's contented. You don't want to barge in on a man who's hungry, right? I mean, basically, that's what it's saying. And then she says, watch and see where he lies down. Now, back then, uh, they would lie down by the grain that they had threshed and winnowed because they were working all day. And it would be easy for them just to lie down there and get up in the morning and keep working. And at the same time, this was the time of the judges. And we see from reading through judges that there were peoples that would come through and steal the grain and the barley. So often they'd have to sleep by it to protect it from thieves. So she says, watch where he lies down. I mean, could you imagine the embarrassment if she laid at the feet of the wrong man? <laughs> She's saying, you gotta know where he's lying down. I mean, pay specific attention to where Boaz is. And then she says, uncover his feet and lie down yourself. And then wait to hear what Boaz says. Now, this was a crazy, risky, bizarre plan. I mean, scholars say this is absolutely unbelievable, and the narrator, the author, wants us to sense that. The author wants us to sense that Ruth was willing to go to bizarre lengths to be obedient to what she was called to do. Uh, remember, as Carlin had read this morning in chapter two of Ruth, that it was risky for a foreign woman to even glean during the day. How much more to go in the middle of the night to a threshing floor, uncover some guy's feet, and then lay at them? I mean, that was so risky and so bizarre. Literally, Boaz could have done whatever he wanted at that point. I mean, she was making herself that vulnerable. He could have done whatever he wanted. But you know, he was a godly man. And that's why Naomi directed Ruth to Boaz, because he was a godly man. Again, this was the time of the judges, and historians say that the threshing floors in the period of the judges were known for some very shady behavior. So Boaz could have thought that she was coming even as a prostitute to make some money. I mean, she was taking a great risk here. I, I get nervous even thinking about it. I mean, I don't even like walking to my car at night at the mall, you know? I'm walking super fast, holding onto my phone with the flashlight on. Can you imagine her, this foreign woman in this ancient place, going in the middle of the night, doing something so outlandish to be obedient to what she was asked to do? And then verse five. I just, you know, can't get over verse five. It says, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. Have we ever replied like that to God and really meant it and really been ready to do it? Whatever you say, I will do it. No matter how bizarre, how weird, how outlandish, how risky, 
no matter if I'm putting my own physical safety in jeopardy, is if this is what you're calling me to do, I will do it. I will do whatever you say. The second point is ruthlessly submit your will to God's because that's what she did. She was willing to do whatever she was told and obey despite the dangers. She would put herself in the hands of Naomi's plan, actually God's plan, by going along with whatever she asks. You know, the word ruthless means have no pity, have no mercy, even be cruel. It means without Ruth. Without Ruth, you need to be pitiless towards your own desires and submit them. Submit your will instead to God. Be without pity when it comes to what you want to do and submit those things to what God wants you to do. And there's so much going on here. In Genesis chapter 38, a long time before this, hundreds of years before this, there was a pair of daughters and a man who were alone at night. And these two daughters, they got their father drunk. And they had sex with their dad. And the son that was born from the first daughter who had sex with her dad was the first of the Moabites, the ones that Ruth was a descendant of. It's almost like the author, the Holy Spirit, is showing us that the obedience of Ruth is gonna overturn the sin of the past. I mean, it's unbelievable how they did what they wanted to do to provide children for themselves, and they sinned against God, and they broke God's law, and they broke God's principle to get what they wanted. And you see Ruth in the absolutely opposite place, saying, I'm willing to even put myself at great personal danger to do things God's way instead of my way. Ruth is turning things upside down here. She, as a foreign woman, is obeying like an obedient Israelite was called to do. And as we see, as we're gonna learn, she literally changed the course of history. In verse six, it says, so she did this. She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So now we have the spotlight moving on to Boaz. He ate and he drank and he went asleep and she secretly went over there and uncovered his feet. Well, it was kind of cool then. And the text says at midnight, at midnight he was startled. It says that he shivered and he turned over. He had a case of cold feet, right? <laughs> Well, Ruth certainly didn't have cold feet, praise God, but Boaz did, and the cold feet woke him up, and he was fully alert, and he saw a woman, but he didn't know who it was. He didn't address her as my daughter, as he had previously, 
And the narrator puts Ruth and Boaz in these really bizarre circumstances so that we will see the great risk that she was willing to take in order to do God's will. The narrator wants us to feel like this is weird. I mean, this is unusual and just highly out of norm, out of characteristic for what was gonna be going on during that time. A man and a woman sleeping together at night on a threshing floor? We're supposed to be shocked as we read this, and we're supposed to be shocked by her obedience. And then Boaz says to her, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now again, he didn't know who she was, he just knew that it was a woman. She risked her reputation, her physical safety. She risked it all. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's unbelievable what she did. She basically said to him, marry me. Back then, that term to spread your wings over was a way of saying, marry me. Uh, we see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Ezekiel 16, 8, for example, where God says that he spread the corner of his garment over Israel and covered her nakedness. This was insane at that time. You've got a woman proposing to a man. I mean, that's even hard in our day, right? You've got a younger person to an older person. You've got the field worker to the field owner. And not only a field worker, but a gleaner to a field owner. And you've got a foreigner to an Israelite. Taking great courage, taking great risk to do whatever she could to be obedient, saying, Boaz, will you marry me and provide for us? Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And that word there for wings in the Hebrew, kanaf, it means wing, or it can mean outer edges of a garment. And you know what? It's the exact same word used in our weekend theme verse from 2.12, where Boaz said to Ruth, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same exact Hebrew word. You have come to take refuge under the wings of God. And now she says, spread your wings over me. It's amazing what God is doing here and just the literary genius in this chapter, in this whole book, the way the author is challenging us. I mean, you can just feel the author at this point saying to the reader, what about you? Can you trust God? Are you willing to obey God the way that Ruth did? I mean, this is just unbelievable. And we have to think practically. What is it that God wants us to do to be obedient to him? What do we need to do to be ruthless with ourselves and our desires? I mean, there's some things that we do under the cover of darkness that we should not be doing. Some of us are addicted to wine. 
And that's not good. We need to be ruthless with ourselves. If we're addicted to wine, if we're going through the day and every night thinking about that glass of wine we're gonna have when we get home, and then the glass after that, that's not good. The Bible says that we are not to be addicted to wine. Some of us watch pornography. Some of us will view pornography when nobody's looking. And that's wrong. And we need to be ruthless with ourselves. Some of us are just gossips. I mean, we just keep talking about other people. Or we're divisive. We cause problems. We cause strife. We stir up drama in the church and between people. And if we're doing any of these things or anything else that in our heart right now, we know God is saying, stop. Then we've got to be ruthless with ourselves and stop doing it and submit our desires to his. Jesus made this super clear in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I mean, that's how important this stuff is to Jesus. If you're sinning under the cover of darkness, feeling like nobody sees and nobody knows, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. One commentator called this radical amputation. Be willing to do whatever it takes to be ruthless with yourself in order to submit your desires to God's desires because that's what Ruth did. You know, and if we're at that place, if we're doing something, if we need to stop something, if we need to be ruthless with a habit, a behavior, a practice, a way of thinking in our life, we need to confess. We need to choose to stop. And you know what? We need to get accountable. I know it's embarrassing to tell somebody, you know what? I think I'm addicted to wine. I mean, I'm literally drinking wine every single night. I think it's at a point where it's not good. Can you help me? Can you hold me accountable? Can you just text me at night and say, can you drink tea tonight instead of wine? I mean, does it have to be wine? Or some people are smoking pot. I mean, I talk to a lot of people who say pot is legal and they're now smoking pot. Stop, right? Ruth would not be smoking pot at night. <laughs> We've got to stop. If that's you, seriously, talk to somebody. Get some help. Get someone to hold you accountable. Boaz was a redeemer. The Hebrew word go all. He was a redeemer. He was one who buys another back. And we got to think, how does he respond to this? I mean, this is so strange and bizarre. Does he tell her, like, get out of here before anyone will notice? Or does he say, you know, you're out of your mind and I'm going to call the cops? I mean, in Ruth 3.10, he says, instead, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, 
And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For you, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He said, do not fear. And that's our third point, is we need to obey without fear, without being afraid. Boaz here, he wasn't offended, he wasn't angry. In fact, he was flattered. He knew what she had done. He said, you could have married for love. You could have married a poor person that was poor and you didn't care. You just wanted to marry them because you were in love with them. Or you could have married for money. You could have married a rich person. But you chose, like you always do, you chose to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. And you know what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of what you've done. God is with you, and he's going to work this out. You know, the same is true for us. The same is true for us. We have the same instruction in 1 Peter 3, 6. 1 Peter 3, 6 says the same thing to us. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, her husband, calling him Lord. And it says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The scripture says to us, you wanna be children of Sarah, which is a good thing, then you need to not fear anything that is frightening. The daughters of Sarah, they're women who wage war on fear with the promises of God. They hold that fear up to the promise of God and they say, I will hold on to the promise of God and I will put that fear behind me, even fear that is frightening. You know, this story of Boaz and Ruth, it's not a Hollywood love story at all. It's really not. There was probably no real physical attraction here. I mean, Boaz was old and he was unmarried. Uh, one commentator said he could have been like Danny DeVito. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you can just picture that in your mind. And Ruth was a woman who worked hard. She was out in the hot sun all day carrying 50-pound bags. I, this was not glamorous. They weren't physically attracted or physically just enamored with one another. It was something far better. They were spiritually attractive. These were spiritually attractive people and they were attracted to that in one another. And we see that in Boaz's response to Ruth. He says, you are a godly woman. Ruth, you are a godly woman. Last year we looked at Proverbs 31, the exceptional woman. He said, Ruth, you are an exceptional woman and everybody knows it, not just me. Everyone in this town knows that you are a worthy woman. That word there, worthy woman, those two words in the Hebrew, guess what they are? Those two weird words from Proverbs 31.10 that we looked at last year, the Eshed Heil, He's saying, you are the Proverbs 31 woman, and everybody knows it. You are the Eshet Heil, the valiant woman, the woman of great worth. That is you. You are a living illustration 
of Proverbs 31. That's who Ruth was. And it's no coincidence that in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. So we go from Proverbs 31 right into Ruth. And that's no coincidence that Eshet Hiel is only used in Proverbs 31.10, Proverbs 12.4, and here. Ruth is our Proverbs 31.25 woman, the one who's clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs at the future. She is obedient without fear. She says, I am not afraid. I'm not afraid of the future because I am in the Lord, because I am right with the Lord. Her life was all about pleasing God. And if we're living a life that's all about pleasing to God, why? Why is there any reason to be afraid? There's not. There's not. If we're afraid, we're thinking that we might suffer or that we might go through something that's too hard for us. But God says, no, if you're in me, don't worry. Don't fear. I'm with you. I'm on your side. Psalm 118, verse 6. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. Nothing if we are in the Lord. We are safe in Christ. And the Bible promises us that God's plan for our life, it cannot be thwarted. Job 42.2, if you can memorize that verse this weekend, Job 42.2, it's something that you can hide with you for the rest of your life. Job 42.2, Job, after seeing God, after hearing God, he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There is nothing that any person, any circumstance, anything can do to mess up your life. God's plan for your life cannot be thwarted. That doesn't mean that we won't experience suffering. It doesn't mean that we won't have to take risks. But we can't mess up. No one can mess up God's plan for our life. And if we're living for him, there's nothing to be afraid about. Because he's got it. He's got us in his hands. And he knows what he's doing. If God's plan can't be thwarted, what do we have to worry about? Remember back in uh, the first verse of chapter two that Carlin read this morning, I talked about Boaz being a worthy man, the Heil, that same word. Now Ruth is a worthy woman. He's proclaiming Ruth, you are the Eshet Heil, you are the worthy woman, the valiant woman. I see us as equals in the Lord. And that was huge for this respectable Israelite man who was a wealthy landowner to say, we are equals in the Lord to a poor, foreign widow. Just unbelievable what was going on here. It's like imagine a destitute widow woman walking at five o'clock down your neighborhood in the morning and opening the trash cans and pulling out all the used you know, aluminum cans to recycle them. And then saying, you know what? You and I, 
You're a worthy woman and I'm a worthy woman. You're a worthy man and I'm a worthy woman. We are equals in the Lord. He was blown away by her character, by her fearless obedience. And he said, you and I, we are equals in the Lord because we love and obey and serve the latest, the same God. And she didn't use beauty products to get there. She didn't chum up to the popular women in the city. She just loved and served God and was willing to obey him at all costs. And then Boaz said, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. That kindness, that Hebrew hesed. Remember in chapter one, Naomi said to Ruth, may God show you hesed, favor, kindness, the way that you have showed hesed to me and to my sons. You have been a very kind and loving woman. And now Boaz is saying, you know what? That kindness, that hesed that you showed to Naomi and to her sons, this is even greater because you're willing to risk everything. You're willing to risk everything here to be obedient to the Lord. It is amazing. May we be obedient like this. You know, I think about what have I done to be obedient to God like this without fear? You know, just kind of surveying over my Christian life and thinking, well, I did at one point go to the Ukraine to smuggle Bibles in when I was really scared, but I felt like that was something that God wanted me to do, and so I did it. I remember one time in my chemistry lab at Cal State Long Beach standing up on the workbench and proclaiming the gospel to the whole class. I was a new Christian at the time. <laughs> and one girl came to me who was a Christian and said, good job. <laughs> you know, one thing that was really hard for me was the hot topic on Jesus Calling. I mean, that was fearful for me and I got hate letters after that. You know, it is what it is, right? I mean, another way that I've had to obey God without fear is saying no to my kids. To my kids when they're junior high and high school when everyone else is doing it. And having to say, no, you can't do it. Or, you know, when my husband said, I really want you to get a motorcycle license. <laughs> okay, for the sake of relationship, I will set aside those fears or remaining faithful, and not only faithful, but joyful, even in a tough marriage. You know, those are times that God has helped me to obey without fear. But what is God calling us to do for him right now? What does he want us to do right now? If we really think in our hearts and our minds, his plan cannot be thwarted. What is he calling us to do? But there was a little wrench. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. Boaz said, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the wedding bells aren't ringing yet. 
not quite yet, because he says there is another redeemer even closer than I. And he tells her to lie down, the Hebrew loon. And it's funny because it's the same word that's used in Ruth 1.16 when she made that great statement that we looked at in the chiasm last night where she said, where you lodge, I will lodge. And this is the same word. He said, lodge here. Same Hebrew word. And we know, you know what, Ruth, she's got this. She's going to do it. This is not a problem for her. And Boaz makes this oath to her. As Yahweh lives, you and your mother-in-law will be provided for. Now go back to sleep. God's going to give you everything that you need. And that's our final point is trust God to give you all you need. And I'm sure that sleep wasn't easy for any of these people. I'm sure it wasn't easy for Boaz because he's thinking about this other potential redeemer and how he's got to get into the city quickly and take care of this. I mean, Ruth's there thinking, I got to get out of here before the sun comes up. And you got Naomi at home wondering what in the world has happened as she sent this daughter-in-law out on this crazy plan. The text says in verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. He had to actually load it on top of her. She went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law. The mother-in-law said, how did you fare? What happened? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She got up while it was still dark, and he said, no one can know what went on here because there would be suspicions. This was the time of the judges. We have basically an old man, and then we've got this foreign seductress, right? I mean, that's what people would say. He said, get out of here before the town gossips are just lit up, right? We want to get you out of here. And even Boaz didn't know what was going to happen next because he didn't know how the closer redeemer would respond. And then he said, but before you go, hold out your cloak. And he loaded her up with six measures of barley. They say between 60 to 90 pounds of barley. And he had to put it back up on her back himself. And when she got down to Naomi, Naomi said, how did it go? And (laughs) she said, these six measures of barley he gave me. He said, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty. Does that remind you of anything? We've gone full circle from chapter one, right? Naomi, who came back to Bethlehem, and she said, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh brought me back empty. And now Boaz is saying, you don't want your mother-in-law to be empty. God's mercy on these people is incredible. God has turned this story upside down because of the obedience of Ruth 
It's absolutely amazing. And she's done her part. She put her confidence in Boaz, in Naomi, and in God ultimately. And one way or another, God was going to provide for them and give them everything that they needed. We just gotta ask ourselves, what are we willing to risk to be obedient to Jesus? If we're still not willing to risk our time to be in our Bibles every day, we gotta get there. We gotta choose to do that. If we're not willing to risk our time to be praying, we've gotta be talking to God. If we're not willing to risk our reputation and maybe being seen as a weirdo in telling other people that they're separated from God because of their sins and that he's gonna judge them one day. And if they don't get right through the provision of Christ, putting their trust in Christ and turning from their sins, they're gonna be separate from him eternally. We've gotta risk forgiving people. We gotta risk letting go of the revenge that we want other people to feel because we're so angry about how they hurt us. We gotta risk letting that go. We gotta risk bitterness and jealousy and say, you know what? Other people might be seen as better than me. Other people might get more praise or accolades than me. So what, right? We gotta risk being taken advantage of by serving people and serving in the church. We gotta risk our wallet and our bank account by being generous. We have to risk our rights by being submissive to our husbands. I mean, look at the submissiveness and the obedience of Ruth. We can be submissive, we can yield to our husbands. And ultimately, we've gotta risk our life by following Jesus. And I think I can say that if you're not really risking your life to follow Jesus, then you're not really following Jesus. Because he wants us to give him everything because he's given it all to us. Let's determine to be like Ruth, to be that woman who says, all that you say, I will do. God, whatever you say, I'm willing to do it. Even tonight, you know, God, I know what you're showing me to do. I know what you want me to do. I know where you want me to change my thinking, my attitude, my behavior, and whatever it is, I am willing to do it because that's what our Ruth did, right? That's our godly woman. That's what God wants us to do. And there is another woman who did the same thing. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot, if you've heard of her. Uh, she married her husband, Jim, in Ecuador in the 1950s, and they got married in Ecuador because they were missionaries down there. Uh, they heard about a tribe of people who had never heard the gospel before. Uh, they were known as the Aucas, which meant savages. They were a savage tribe of people that had even been known to practice cannibalism. And they really had a heart for these people and they wanted to bring the gospel to these people. So less than three years into their marriage, her husband Jim and four other men made first contact with these savage people and they ended up being speared to death. They were killed by the people that they wanted to bring the gospel to. And yet even after the death of her husband, she didn't leave Ecuador. 
She continued to work there with those people that God had burdened them for and caused them to want to bring the gospel to. And she ended up learning their language by, from a woman who had left the tribe and ultimately was invited to go back into the jungle and meet these people. Now, when she was invited to go back, she had one child from her husband, Jim. Her name was Valerie and she was three years old. And Elizabeth said, taking my three-year-old daughter strapped to my back into that jungle was the biggest test of faith ever. Because not only the dangers that would be in the jungle, but what if these people decided to kill her and take her baby daughter? I mean, why wouldn't they? They had done the same thing to her husband, right? She had no guarantees from God. And she said, she said, nevertheless, as long as this is what the Lord requires of me, then all else is irrelevant. Irrelevant, it means not relevant. It's beside the point. It doesn't matter. She ended up going there, living there, and leading people in that tribe to Christ because she was willing to say, as long as this is what the Lord requires of me, then all else is irrelevant. May the same be true for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this text of Ruth. We thank you so much for all the treasure and the richness that is here. God, I pray that we would be women, that even tonight, that we would plan to do as you ask. No matter how risky or bizarre it is, God, that whatever you want us to do that we see on the pages of scripture, I pray, God, that we would be willing to submit our will to your will and we would do so ruthlessly that we would be merciless with ourselves, that it wouldn't be about ourselves, that we would put our will under your will, Lord God, and that your will would prevail above all. And God, help us to do this without fear. God, help us to know if we're here to live for you and to love your son, then we don't need to be frightened by even things that are frightening because your will will be done. God, we trust, we trust that you will provide everything we need just as you did for Ruth and just as you did for Naomi, Lord. God, please, may we echo the words of Ruth in our heart, in our mind. May it really be branded upon us. May this be a point of change for every single one of us in this room. All that you say I will do. We love you, Jesus, and we desire to obey you. We pray in your precious name, amen.